United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We have an interesting and upbeat show for you today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and as promised, after last week's show, this one will be a positive one. Today is all about regenerative agriculture, but much like our show on COVID-19, we need to start with a little history lesson. And that lesson begins in the American Midwest, specifically in my home state of Oklahoma, as well as parts of Kansas and Texas. While Oklahoma isn't what you'd really call a thriving tourist destination, it does have one of the more interesting histories of any state in the U.S. And while I won't dive into all the aspects here, there is a piece of their history that relates to our show today. And so our story begins in 1820 with the scientific expedition of Stephen H. Long. Now, Long journeyed across the Great Plains after the Louisiana Purchase, and in his report on the area from Nebraska down to Oklahoma, he said that the area was, quote, unfit for cultivation and, of course, uninhabitable by a people depending on agriculture, end quote. He further went on to refer to it as the Great American Desert, despite Native Americans living there, as well as vast grasslands that supported tens of millions of American bison. At the time, he was actually right, as the tools of the time didn't allow for cultivation of these vast treeless grasslands that received only small amounts of rain. However, despite its reputation, a hundred years a land run and statehood later, the area was a thriving agricultural community. Unbeknownst to farmers at the time, their practices of removing all the natural grasses and deep plowing of great swaths of land would have a disastrous outcome. In the summer of 1930, an unusually dry spell hit the region. Now, that trend would continue over the next decade, registering four of its driest seven years since consistent records began in 1895. With a severe drought firmly grasping the Great Plains, native grasses gone and large amounts of topsoil broken up only to bake in the hot sun. It only took the wind to turn the region into a figurative hell. The wind swept up the dry soil, creating large clouds of dust, giving birth to the Dust Bowl that enveloped the region and would destroy both the biome as well as the livelihood of many of its inhabitants for several decades to come. Interestingly enough, both of my grandmothers told me stories of living through the Dust Bowl when I was younger. One told me about spreading wet towels over her baby brother's crib to keep him from being coated in dust while he slept. And the other told me about hanging wet towels over the windows in an effort just to keep dust out of the house. And when she set the dinner table, she would put the plates upside down until everybody sat to be served to keep the plates from getting covered in dust. So you may be saying... Well, thanks for the family history, Brian, but how does that story relate to the science we're discussing today? Well, as difficult as it is to believe, the Dust Bowl was a direct result of poor stewardship of the land. No, man didn't cause the drought, but through poor practices, it led to a devastated environment, quite analogous to the anthropogenic climate change in our planet today. The good news? 
We haven't hit our Dust Bowl moment with the earth, and we have an opportunity to change our ways. And one of those ways just so happens to be a better land management practice in the form of regenerative agriculture. Now, Regen Ag, as it's oft referred to, is on the highest level a way of farming that protects and enhances the natural resources. It is a recognition that farms are part of a larger ecosystem and that they should not detract from that ecosystem. Rather, they should pay into it. It is both a conservation as well as a rehabilitation approach to farming and ranching that focuses on improving the water cycle, increasing biodiversity, and most of all, focuses on soil health and the regeneration of topsoil. Okay, so how does it work? How does it tie into anthropogenic climate change and why is it so important? Well, to answer those questions... We'll dive right in, but bear in mind that because this is such an extensive subject with multiple facets, a host of papers were used in developing today's show instead of our usual one or two. But as always, you can find links to those papers over at southof2degrees.org. So let's start with what exactly is regenerative agriculture. But actually, before we do, I want to quickly answer that question that's probably bouncing around your head, and that's... Okay, Brian, what's the difference between organic farming, sustainable farming, and region ag? Is this like the whole global warming, climate change, climate crisis phraseology we discussed a few weeks ago? The answer to that is no. It's significantly different. Organic farming is a way of farming that relies on natural fertilizers and natural pest controls over synthetic ones. To be certified organic in the U.S., no synthetic fertilizer or pesticide can be used on the land not only on the current harvest, but for the preceding three years as well. While some experts will debate the true meaning of an organic farm at a base level, that is what it is. And a quick aside, according to a paper titled Global Organic Area Continues to Grow, published on the 12th of February 2020, only 1.5% of the world's cropland is organic, and 50% of the world's organic cropland is in Australia. The next closest country only has one-tenth of the organic farming that Australia does. Sustainable farming, on the other hand, is a set of processes designed around locking in what we have today and perpetuating that into the future. Now, this requires an increased energy input in order to maintain a static system. Regen Ag, on the other hand, looks to regenerate the natural systems that used to be in place and serve to provide a feedback cycle to assist it in doing so. Essentially, it's a way of farming that follows a permaculture philosophy, and it does it using five basic principles. The first principle is maximizing crop diversity. Farming has developed with massive monoculture farms where farmers have to use large amounts of synthetic fertilizer and pesticides to allow for sustainable yields. Now, over time, not only does it destroy the soil, but it also increases the resilient populations of pests and diseases in the area. In fact, in both the Jewish Torah as well as the Christian Bible, there are many references to giving the fields a Sabbath year where nothing was to be grown. While it's unlikely they had in-depth knowledge of the soil, carbon, and water cycles at the time, they did understand monoculture growth over time would hurt the land. By increasing plant diversity, nutrient balance is maintained. 
pests are reduced, and increased carbon is sequestered. In fact, according to a paper called Soil Carbon Sequestration Accelerated by Restoration of Grassland Biodiversity, published on the 12th of February 2019, found that plant diversity increased carbon sequestration by 70% over what monoculture plots produced, and weeds were noticeably reduced in the areas of high biodiversity as well. The second principle is to keep the soil covered. Simply put, this prevents the sun from drying out the soil, erosion from both wind and rain, as well as carbon oxidation, all while supporting the community of microorganisms within the soil. In your personal garden, you may use a standard mulch. However, on Regen Ag Farms, a living mulch is the preferred method. This feeds into the third principle of maintaining living roots year-round. This is usually achieved, which is what is often referred to as a cover crop or cover cocktail, because it often includes a mixture of rye, clover, and field peas. Not only does this keep the ground covered, but also works to further carbon sequestration when the main crops are not being grown. Think of it like leaving a straw in a drink such that the earth can continue to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and convert it to nutrients all while waiting for next year's crops. The fourth principle is one of the most important and that is no or at the very least minimal tilling. Think of a soft loaf of sourdough bread for a minute. What makes it spectacular? Well, to a fair degree, it's the light, airy nature and soft, doughy goodness that brings it all together. You hungry yet? Now, go run over that loaf of bread with a car until it's dense and compact. Sound appetizing now? I'll answer that for you on this one. No. No, it doesn't. Well, soil is much the same. A healthy soil is like a black version of that amazing sourdough. It's light and fluffy, providing a structure for both root propagation as well as moisture retention. When tillage occurs, it breaks up this structure, collapsing it such that it hardens over time and can no longer absorb water and prevents healthy root structure. The fifth principle is to integrate livestock. Now, this may run counterintuitive for some as why would you want cattle, goats, pigs, rabbits, and chickens all running around in what is essentially a very large garden? If we think back to the purpose of Regen Ag, it's to mimic the natural systems. The Great Plains used to be home to between 50 and 60 million bison. Was that causing a global crisis? No, it wasn't. Well, then why does the running of cattle get so many folks up in arms? To be honest, it's the practices in which they are raised. If you've ever been to a modern cattle yard, it is packed tightly with animals standing on bare earth and relying on large quantities of feed corn and hay, which have to be grown in their own large monoculture fields, in order to gain weight before going to market. When cropland and pasture land are intertwined, interesting things start to happen. The frequent movement of the animals aerates the soil in a less invasive way and a grazing philosophy that avoids what is referred to as a second bite promotes new plant growth through a natural pruning process without killing the plant off. Further, the natural fertilizer invites helpful insects and microbes in breaking down nutrients for the soil. Okay, so there we have the five principles, biodiversity, soil cover, living roots, no-tilling, and livestock integration. And while we now know that not all sustainable or organic farming is regenerative, 
all regenerative farming is both organic and sustainable long into the future. Now that the textbook is out of the way, let's look at a case study in Regen Ag. While many could be written, one of the more prominent case studies is on a small-ish farm of 3,000 acres called White Oak Pastures in Georgia and was led by Dr. Jason Roundtree of Michigan State University with an ecological outcome verification conducted by the Savory Institute, which is one of the largest nonprofits focused on regenerative agriculture. A quick note, I'm not endorsing or promoting white oak pastures, rather just using them as a significant and scientifically verified real-world study of Regen Ag. Now, white oak pastures abides by the five basic principles of Regen Ag. They don't till the soil, they create their own compost using cleaned and locally grown peanut shells, vegetable matter from previous harvests, and actually animal remains that aren't used in tallow, pet chews, or leather production. And they inoculate the soil with lactobacillus, which is both found in beer and sourdough, which we were talking about earlier. And that functions as a natural antibacterial and antifungal agent. Now, White Oak Pastures is a fifth-generation family farm established in 1866, but it wasn't until 1995, just 25 years ago, that they made the decision to move towards a more natural system of agriculture. To be fair, it didn't come cheap or without financial stress. For the first three years, they suffered a financial loss that almost caused them to return to modern methods. However, they successfully pushed through and are now a great example. The study found, quote, By converting annual cropland to perennial pasture and a monoculture of cattle to a diverse range of animals, they are regenerating the health of the soil that has been heavily degraded from years of tillage, pesticide use, and monocropping. They now raise sheep, goats, hogs, poultry, and rabbits, in addition to cattle, in an integrated farming system. End quote. By 2017, they had offset approximately 85% of the entire farming operation emissions and was actually net negative on carbon emissions, even with methane and nitrous oxide equivalents figured in, on a per kilogram of beef basis. Their regenerative process sequestered 3.5 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of beef produced. So how does that stack up against traditional beef? Well, traditional beef in the United States actually produces 33 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of beef, and that number is 27 kilograms of CO2 globally. Oh, and that beyond beef everyone is raving about? That averages 4 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of, well, shall we say product. Now, does this make white oak pastures perfect? No, it doesn't. The study didn't cover water consumption comparisons, which is high across the board for meat production in general. However, as we look to fight anthropogenic climate change, they are a great example of how we can work smarter within an industry that's often vilified to not just feed the populace, but to reduce atmospheric CO2 while we're at it. Okay, great, you say. I get the holistic bit, Brian, but why does everyone focus so much on soil? Well, let me put that into perspective for you. There's approximately 2,500 gigatons of carbon sequestered in the top one meter of soil, and almost two-thirds of which is organic. To put that into context, 
If that much carbon were coffee beans, it would sustain the world's drinking habits of 400 billion cups of coffee a year for the next 587,500 years. I know, I'm a nerd for doing the math to figure that one out, but I am who I am. So when experts like Dr. Rattan Lau, who we've talked about before, of Ohio State University say soil is important, he isn't wrong. In fact, according to one of the papers we used to develop today's show called Global Sequestration Potential of Increased Organic Carbon in Cropland Soil, published 14th November 2017, the amount of carbon sequestered in the top one meter of soil is 3.2 times that of the atmospheric pool and four times that of the biotic pool. In other words, fourfold all the trees, plants, shrubs, and grasses across the entire planet. So there you have regenerative agriculture and soil health in a nutshell. However, if you're still struggling to understand why this is so important, according to the IPCC, 70% of global freshwater use and 23% of greenhouse gases derive from agriculture, 13% of CO2, 44% of methane, and 82% of nitrous oxide. In fact, the most recent IPCC report on climate change in land said, quote, All assessed modeled pathways that limit warming to 1.5 degrees C or well below 2 degrees C require land-based mitigation and land use change, end quote. Finally, I'll leave you with this thought. The entire Earth is 510 million square kilometers, 361 million of which is ocean and 18.1 million is covered in ice. This leaves us with 130 million square kilometers, 37% of which is pasture, and only 12% or a mere 15.6 million square kilometers supports all the crops that feed our entire planet. To help visualize that, think of the earth like an apple. Cut it into four pieces. Three of those represent the ocean and ice-covered land of the planet. Now cut that remaining piece in half. One slice represents those lands that can't be used. Now if you cut that last piece into four slices, three represent pasture land. And that last remaining one, just one thirty-second of our apple represents the cropland where the world gets 95% of its food from. And the skin of that slice is the soil those crops depend on. Yet we have abused and mistreated the soil so badly, it has at times literally been blown away like it was during the Dust Bowl. No, regenerative agriculture is not a silver bullet, but when you think about how the whole of the human population depends on our little slice of apple, it brings a whole new meaning to saving your skin. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you got as much out of it as the love we put into making this episode. As always, I look forward to having you back again with me next week as we broadcast from Louisville, Kentucky. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.